Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Greg Kobola, Professor of Computational slash Experimental Approaches to Grammar at the Institute for Linguistics at the University of Leipzig, and he's here to discuss mathematical linguistics. Greg Kobola, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Okay, so probably a lot of our listeners don't really know that much about what linguistics is, and especially those of our listeners who don't know what linguistics is might be surprised to hear that math is somehow involved in it. So I was wondering if maybe we could talk about what exactly linguists do. So like is studying linguistics, like how is that different from, for example, me going off to learn French or learn Chinese or something? Is it is learning a foreign language the same thing as doing linguistics or are they somehow different? It's a great question, Matt. Um, so the linguistics is a broad field and um, I'm going to be speaking about a particular narrow aspect of it. Um, linguistics has contact points with language revitalization, with uh, language documentation, with language change, um, as well as more narrow things like syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. And I'm going to really be ignoring these, uh, from my perspective, peripheral aspects of linguistics and just talking about the narrowly construed, so to speak, theoretical linguistics, simply because that's, that's where my interests lie. I don't mean to offend anybody. Linguistics is a broad thing. It's all important. It's all great. I think of linguistics as a... Uh, is really a study of human behavior, so I must confess to having some sort of empiricist leanings. Uh, it's really a study of human behavior. It's akin to psychology in that respect, um, and the kind of human behavior that we're studying is human linguistic behavior, uh, broadly construed. And again, behavior is broadly construed as well. You know, neuroimaging, uh, I'm counting as behavior as well. The linguist's job is, the linguist is trying to discover a particular causal power here that's relevant in linguistic behavior. And it's a hypothesis that there is one coherent one, or rather that the one coherent one is the one that linguists are studying. But the ultimate goal of linguistics, as I see it, is to contribute the theory of this causal power, which will then integrate itself with other people's theories of other causal powers that are contributing to linguistic behavior, or to human behavior in general. And so we're interested in trying to understand how, uh, at the first level, how people use language, right? So how people use language to do things. And one of the abstractions that we make already at this point is how people use language to communicate information. And again, this narrow picture of the broader human behavior, human linguistic behavior, is further subdivided into how the form of people's utterances contributes to the uh, some aspect of the meaning that is regularly associated with it. And again, meaning is really only observable through people's behavior, uh, but we often abstract away from that and think about meaning as an inherent property of the utterance, and we try to figure out how the form of an utterance is associated with its meaning. But the reason I'm engaging in this long spiel is because I think that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that even though we're focusing on these very abstract relations between 
idealized sounds and idealized meanings, it's all in service ultimately to this more data-driven goal of explaining how people act or contributing to an explanation of how people act. So I think one question that people might have about this project is like, what's the mystery about people's behavior? You know, isn't it like, why would there need to be a whole sort of like field of study, maybe even a science looking at how people can speak a language? Isn't it just sort of obvious? You know, we, you know, I don't know. I say stuff that occurs to me. Uh, and then like, well, what do words mean? I don't know. I figure out what words mean by looking them up in the dictionary. So, you know, what, what's the big deal here from an intellectual perspective? Why is this challenging to do this? So I think that there are two relevant points here. One is that it's intellectually interesting, or rather it's, I think it's fascinating because language is such an intrinsic and inherent property of us, right? We're the, the animal who speaks. And so studying language really is studying something about ourselves that seems so fundamental to, to who we perceive ourselves to be. But the difficulty of these questions is becomes really manifest once you start trying to write down exactly how you imagine this uh, this process of language learning or of language use is going. So if you imagine yourself trying to write down instructions for someone that doesn't speak the language, that really codifies your ability to do so, a lot of the things that we uh, take for granted suddenly become much more mysterious than they otherwise do. So one of the aspects of, of language that is uh, puzzling or somehow at a cocktail party uh, frustrating for a linguist is just that we all speak a language and we all do it extremely well and it comes naturally and so a lot of the difficulty involved, the inherent difficulty is opaque to naive introspection. But even lay people, as soon as they start trying to really rigorously write down what they think is going on, they realize, oh, there's really much more going on here than, uh, than it seems to me at first blush. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's really easy to underestimate how much work you're doing and what kind of like mental jujitsu is going on under the hood if you even just say something simple. And maybe you can learn how complicated that it is by just, you know, maybe the exercise of trying to teach somebody who doesn't speak English to speak English. It's really hard to get to tell them all the exact rules they have to follow. There's like just millions of rules. So I think one of the uh, difficulties at the outset is uh, this notion of rule. So there's this notion of prescriptive rule that people often object to that is somehow codified in uh, countries like France or Germany with the Académie Française or the Duden. And that's not really what, uh, what we're after. Right? We're not trying to tell people how to speak. What we're interested in is really understanding the regularities that, that manifest themselves in people's behavior. And we use things that we call rules to describe these regularities. But it's the regularities that we're interested in, not the somehow a priori rules that tell you this is how you speak English correctly. Um, and one of the one of the fascinating things about language is that, as, especially in the United States, uh, an immigrant nation, uh, is that many people come here and speak English uh, in ways that are different from, say, my dialect growing up. And yet we have no problem understanding each other, and so really the the mode of communication that we engage in is very flexible. And yet, despite this flexibility, there really are substantive and substantial regularities that can be discovered. So linguists aren't interested in telling people this is the way you should speak English versus this other way. That's not part of the project. The project is rather it's what we call descriptive. So it's like analogous to like, I don't know, if you were going out into the woods and observing like the mating habits of swallows or something, you're just you're not telling the swallows like do it this way. You're just trying to find out how do they do it. 
Likewise, if we're systematically trying to describe the rules that people obey when they know a language, it's this descriptive project. You're going out into the wild, as it were, and observing the way people talk and the rules they follow when they know a language. And then you're just trying to just describe exactly what are the patterns that they're observing when they know the language. So if I, if I can interrupt you a little yeah. bit, I think that uh, it's actually quite correct to say that it's a descriptive project, but I think that what we're trying to describe is, well, what we think of ourselves as trying to describe is, a, is one of the causal powers that actually is underlying our actual speech behavior. And so we think that there's this coherent system in the world that is probably some aspect of our psychology or whatever. And this causal power is something that is causally relevant in our actual behavior. And we're trying to understand this system, so to speak. And so we're engaged in a descriptive project, not trying to tell you what you should do, but we're trying to, to understand what you do do as a way of understanding what this causal power is. The reason I want to make this distinction is because we think that we're engaged in a predictive enterprise. So by understanding the nature of this causal power, we're not just categorizing butterflies in the wild, say. We're also trying to understand the ways in which your speech behavior is influenced by these properties of you. And so it's a project that is really attempting to be a predictive one, a scientific one. And by causal power, you mean something like the language faculty, the fact that any human can learn a language and can speak a language, you know, once they're old enough, something like that. That's what people usually, that's a word that people usually use to describe this. Um, but I think it's also useful to think of it just in terms of one of the causal influences on our behavior, just like my not having had very much to eat for breakfast does influence the actual behavior that I'm engaging in in some way. So there are lots of ways that uh, my behavior is shaped by various things. Some of them seem less structured and more tangential. Some of them seem to be really regular in nature. And we're hoping, and it thus far seems to be not untrue, that the, the what you're calling the language faculty, and what I'm calling this causal power relevant to linguistics, or that linguists are studying, that underlies part of our language behavior, is a, an internally coherent and consistent object that can be investigated. And we're trying to understand its laws, so to speak. Okay, right. So we're not just looking at, oh, look, these whatever 4,592 sentences are the exact sentences Matt said last week, but we want to understand where they're coming from. What's the principle that's giving rise to these sentences that... Why did Matt yeah. say those sentences and not some other ones, right? So some yeah, of the, so the, the explanation for that is probably not due to any one effect, right? So the reason that Matt said one thing and not something else has a lot to do with what else went on with Matt that day and what's going on in the world and how Matt was feeling at that time. And, but it also had something to do, presumably, with the system of conventions that Matt internalized as a child and growing up that was relevant to the way he tried to convey certain intentions with linguistic forms. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to understand. Okay, so what would be an example of like a pattern that anybody who knows English observes that you would think is really easy to just sort of write down, as you said, but which actually is way more complicated than initially meets the eye? So one of the things that is very jarring to a native speaker to hear is, um, is agreement mismatches. So we're used to saying, 
I am a linguist, but if someone says I are a linguist, even though you understand them perfectly well, it's a very jarring feeling. You really notice that something went wrong. They weren't playing by the same rules that uh, that you're used to. That's right. It like, makes you wince a little bit Indeed. as a speaker of English. Indeed. Yeah. And other things don't necessarily do that. But the generalizations that seem to obtain about when people feel comfortable with certain subjects meeting up with certain verbs is a little more complicated than just the subject of the sentence. It has a certain grammatical number and the grammatical number of the subject of the sentence influences the form of the verb. And one thing that we can see is that in more marginal constructions, or by that I mean constructions that aren't as uh, prominent uh, in your mind when you think about canonical sentences, constructions like existential there sentences, such as uh, there seemed to have been believed, or there were believed to have been two explosions at the factory last week. Here, the subject of the sentence, the grammatical subject there, it's in the subject position right next to the verb. There were believed to have been two explosions. But the agreement is not obviously being uh, triggered by there because we're saying there were believed to have been two explosions. But yeah, in, there is in plural, right? Well, I mean, you might think that it is in this sentence, but in a, in a just change a small aspect of the sentence and you say there was believed to have been an explosion in the factory the other day. There stays the same. And what's going on is that you're changing the number of an explosion versus two explosions, which if you think about the sentence, if you were to write it down, you'd see that that occurs actually much after the, far after the, uh, the main verb, the were, or was in this case, in the sentence. And so the trigger or the governor of the agreement, the agreement triggerer, actually isn't the subject, the grammatical subject, the thing that's in the subject position. It's actually something that's farther down in the clause. Okay, right. So you might initially have thought that, well, the way you figure out how to inflect your verb in a language like English is you match it to certain features of the subject, which is usually around the beginning of the sentence. So, you know, if we have the sentence, Matt was believed to have recorded a podcast, (laughs) then... Matt agrees with the verb was because we didn't say Matt were believed. We said Matt was believed. So Matt is singular and was takes the singular form. So like the normal way we would think about agreement happening in most cases is you look at the subject noun phrase at the beginning of the sentence and you match it. You know, So if it's singular, then the verb of the sentence is singular. If it's plural, then the verb of the sentence is plural. But in these cases with there it seems like the verb isn't matching itself to something at the beginning of the sentence. It's matching itself to something later on. It's matching itself, in your case, to explosions, which occur later in the sentence. They were believed to have been several explosions. It's were is matching with something later rather than something earlier. That's right. And so these examples, I think, show that the generalization that we had originally come up with, that the subject agrees with the verb, is descriptively true in a number of cases, but that's not really... Uh, the right way to describe what's going on. Or, in other words, this notion of subject is in the trigger of agreement needs to be distinguished from subject, the thing that appears in the, so to speak, subject position. And then I guess the big decision we have here, if we're trying to come up with a theory of what an English speaker knows, is it's like option one is, well, verb agreement means the verb always agrees with X, and then we figure out what X is and how that all works, and we have a general rule. 
Maybe option two would be like, well, if the sentence begins with there, agreement follows this rule. And if the sentence begins with something like Matt, not there, then it follows another rule. Is that right? That's right. And so we're trying to understand what a descriptively adequate characterization of these patterns might look like. But we'd also like to have a, an explanation of these patterns that seems regular and simple. One that isn't simply a list of cases to consider. Because, well, in this case, the number of cases may be small. But if you try to list down as individual rules statements for each kind of construction, you're going to end up with a potentially infinite list of constructions, an infinite list of statements. And this is not going to be something that is uh, plausibly representable in a finite way. And so we need to, we want to essentially take these generalizations that you're making and compress them so that we end up with a finite description of this infinite variety that language exhibits. Okay, right. So and that's really kind of one thing anyway that's at stake in the kind of decision about whether we want to split up the rule. If we split up the rule too many times, then it's kind of like, well, we just have an ad hoc rule for every single sentence at the limit case, uh, which is not really explaining anything. What we want is a rule that's general, that has a little bit of explanatory power, and ideally which could bring these cases with the word there and cases with, that start with Matt under the same heading. That's one way to look at it. Another way of thinking about it is that is that what we ultimately want is to have a system uh, that can be learned, right? So this notion of explanatory adequacy, I think, is a shorthand for an idea about what might be possible to be learned. So we might think that if we have just a huge list of exceptions, it's going to be unlikely that that's going to be the generalization that a learner comes up with. Whereas if we have a very simple and elegant statement, that's the kind of thing that a generalizer, a learner, uh, is more likely to converge upon. But ultimately, this notion of elegance, I think, in the context of linguistics, is really just a proxy for a theory of learning. Right, because you can't learn an infinite set of sentences. Like you know, That would take more than a lifetime, obviously. In order to be able to like come up with a new sentence that you've never heard before, that nobody's ever said before, you have to be kind of like generating new sentences, as it were, from some finite stock of knowledge or some finite set of rules. That's right. So the learner's representation of his or her hypothesis needs to be something that's finitely specifiable. That's right. Another thing I think that is surprising to a lot of people about linguistics is that it's not like we're just describing the rules of English, and then maybe somebody over in France is describing all the rules of French, and somebody over in China is describing all the rules of Mandarin Chinese. But rather, there's like collaboration happening between these three cases, and more languages as well. So that someone's discovery about the way some construction works in Mandarin could actually impact my study into what the rules of English are. What's the relation there? Like, why would a discovery about some other language that has nothing to do with English impact the way I decide to understand English? So this is something that's often a point of uh, controversy in linguistics. So many people object to the idea that there is only one language, which is an easy way to understand uh, what you were talking about. So certainly... There's no logical reason why the generalizations about French and about Swahili, for instance, need to look similar. And while there are some people that think they should, there are also people that think they needn't. But what does seem to be the case, what seems to be difficult to avoid, is the thought that there is a common learning mechanism 
across individuals growing up in different cultures, and that each of these languages that people learn are the result of using this common language learning mechanism in these different learning environments. And so what I think a very useful way of thinking about the way that discoveries about generalizations or regularities that are present in, say, French is relevant for um, the generalizations that we might think are present in Swahili is that we expect the generalizations that uh, the learner is able to pick up on to have some sort of internal coherency, internal consistency. And so the formal properties of these generalizations should be similar. And the reason that that is the case is that if you have a, there is no general purpose learner. There is no learner that can learn everything. Learners, by virtue of making one generalization, they rule out the possibility of considering another generalization. And so the space that the learner is able to navigate in is necessarily constrained in a certain way. And so you expect that the possible outputs of the language learning process given that they're produced by the same generalizer, have things in common with one another. And it's not clear whether or not the surface forms of these generalizations need to look very similar, or if there's just a, a deeper similarity that's not surface apparent that lurks between them. But of necessity, given what we know about properties of inductive inferrers, there are going to be structural properties that learnable languages share with one another. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because, you know, if for some reason, like a baby born in Kenya moves to the U.S. and is raised here, they're going to pick up the exact same U.S. English that anybody who was born here originally picks up. You know, we all learn language from the same, as it were, biological starting point. And if that's right, then any description we might try to give of what you have to know in order to know English or what you have to know in order to know Swahili or etc., is going to have to be something that is learnable. That's one constraint we're under. But like uh, anybody who's learning any language is starting from the same point, like the point of being a baby, as it were. That's right. And they have the same procedure for learning languages. Right. So maybe that's how a discovery about Swahili could impact my research about English. If somebody who's researching Swahili discovers that there's some distinctive feature Swahili has that illuminates some fact about how every human being can learn a language that could impact my description of English because I want my description of English to be consistent with what we know about how people learn languages. That's right. Although to be perfectly frank, there's much less work on formal learning of language classes that has been uh, brought into linguistics. And so much of this discussion about how the analysts' inferences about the structure of one language influence other analysts' inferences about the structure of another language has been at the level of a representation of structure as a proxy for the actual learning algorithm. So this is a... I think that the deeper generalization or the deeper justification is in terms of learning, but as many people doing research on language are not also simultaneously doing research on learning algorithms, they have been adopting a very um, preliminary approximation to how learnability should shape inferences about one language given another. Okay, this is great because we've, I think, talked a bit about linguistics now. 
But probably there's also some question marks in the air about what any of this has to do with math. Like we said, this is going to be about mathematical linguistics. Why would mathematics play any role in these like descriptions of rules? I mean, like when we, you know, we could just write them in English. And indeed, that's the kind of thing you see when like uh, somebody who's trying to learn English picks up a book describing the rules. You know, those rules are in whatever that language that person speaks. That's right. Yeah. So um, what kind of role does math have to play in understanding how people learn? So I think that mathematics is a wonderful tool for making descriptions very precise, as well as for comparing descriptions with one another. And I think that irrespective of whether or not one is using a formally precise description to describe something, it's really the thing that's being described that we're interested in, right? Because we don't, we might use, say, English to describe the language French, but we don't think that the grammatical system of French necessarily has anything to do with, say, the number of letters that the English description of it contains, right? There's some aspects of the description that are clearly accidental and not reflecting deep and real properties of the thing being described. I could just as well describe French, the grammatical system of French, using English or using German, right? And they would look different because they're in different languages, but they would be about the same thing. And so we, and I think really anyone that's trying to describe something that they think to be a real thing, is interested not in the description, but in the thing itself. One of my advisors in graduate school, my professor, uh, Ed Keenan, had this propensity to dish out wisdom in Zen koan form. And one of the most enlightening things he said to me, among many enlightening things that he said to me, was that if you can't say something in two ways, you can't say it at all. And what that means is that, well, what I take that to mean, is that if you have just one way of looking at something, then it's very, very difficult to know which aspects of that description, that way of looking at things, is reflecting a real and true property of the thing you're describing, and which is just an accident of the notation, an accident of the way that you're describing it. And by having lots of different ways, multiple ways, of looking at the same thing, you're able to triangulate, as it were, and determine which properties all of these descriptions coincide on, and which ones seem to be particular to each description. And the properties that are particular to a description are unlikely to be real and true properties of the thing that's being described. And so we want to be able to describe something in multiple ways so as to really be able to, to look into the noumenal world and to understand what it is that we're describing, the really essential properties of the thing being described. And using mathematics is just, I think, gives us an edge in doing this. If we have a description that isn't very precise or that isn't formalized, it's very difficult to really know what the properties are that it truly ascribes to things in general, right? Whether they're artifactual properties or notational properties, or whether they're real and true properties, right? The, an unformalized description is just difficult to understand at a precise level. It's sometimes the right way to communicate at an informal level the ideas involved. But if we're trying to really understand the, the essence of the thing that we're describing, it's, I think, crucial to be able to make very precise the description of that thing. And then we can use 
tools that are well known in mathematics to compare whether or not two descriptions are actually equivalent, and if they aren't, where they differ. So what would be an example of two different descriptions of the same phenomenon that you might mistake for being two different phenomena because you're getting confused by superficial features of the notation used to describe each one? So I can give you um, a very abstract characterization of something, which uh, isn't exactly what you asked for. You asked for phenomenon, but I, but I think maybe an abstract characterization is going to be uh, sufficient here. So there are many ways of describing a set of strings, maybe a set of strings of letters, so sets of words, sets of sequences of characters. On the one hand, you can describe them in terms of a logic. You can view a sequence of characters, i.e. a word, as representing a relational structure, i.e. a graph. And you can use a logical sentence to talk about the properties that the graphs you're interested in need to have. And the sentences, the sequences of characters, that have those properties, all and only those sentences that have those properties, are then singled out by this logical description. That's one way of describing a pattern. Another way of describing a pattern is in terms of a machine. Right? You might have a machine that sequentially walks through or consumes each of these letters, and it might move from one state to another, and at the end of walking through these sequences of letters, you look at the state that it ends up in, and if it's a particular state, then you say, this sequence of letters is one of the ones I'm looking for, and if not, then you say it's not one of the ones I'm looking for. Yet another way of describing things is in terms of an algebraic characterization of the patterns you're interested in, where you might say something like, I'm interested in a pattern where I have a letter or another letter repeated some number of times followed by yet another letter repeated some number of times. So it turns out that all of these ways of describing patterns, let me, let me actually be, be a little more precise. If we use a monadic second order logic as the, the logical language and we use finite state machines as the machine language and we use regular expressions as our algebraic description language, all three of these ways of describing patterns or describing sequences of letters are equivalent to one another. So you have a logical characterization of a pattern that ends up being intertranslatable into a machine characterization of a pattern, which is itself also intertranslatable with a algebraic characterization of a pattern. And so this tells us not only that these different ways of thinking about patterns are the same, it also tells us, I think, that there is some sort of object of study here. There is a a realness to the kind of pattern that can be classified in any of these ways. There's some sort of essence of patterns that can be described this way. And the reason that, that, that I have that intuition is because the same class of things is identified in very different, in a number of very different seeming ways. I see. So it's like um, if we have any big list of, let's say, strings consisting of either the letter A or B. So it could be like A, B, A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, 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 A,
that obtain in that set of strings, it's actually like kind of an amazing discovery that you can give a mathematical proof that what look like three different ways of describing how complex the patterns underlying a set of these strings is are actually just interchangeable. Once you have one, you can just mechanically translate it into the other. You can go back and forth between the three. That's right. So they're, they're good for different things, right? These different description languages do have their individual strengths and weaknesses. For example, a, using a logic to describe something can be very elegant and concise. And using a, a machine to describe something in terms of how a machine acts on it in a step-by-step way can be less concise, but it can also be more suggestive of how you might write a computer program that would do that for you. And also certain properties that these patterns have can be more easily proven using one description language than another. But what the equivalence of these description languages tells us in terms of the things that they're describing is that none of them have a monopoly on the properties of the objects that are being described. There is something real there to describe and we can get at it in very many different ways. And so what I think this does is it tells us that when we want to understand where we should have arguments about what the real world object of investigation is like, it shouldn't be at the level of are we using a logic to describe it or are we using a machine to describe it. These are really just alternative ways of describing the same kinds of things. The disagreements that we should have should be focused not at this level, but at some other level. So how do um, some of the mathematical methods you've just described sort of fit in with the rest of linguistics? Is it just sort of like one super specialized subfield of linguistics, or would it maybe be valuable for every linguist to learn a little bit of some of what's happening in this area? Or how does it connect up with what's happening in the rest of the field? <laughs> I think it's uh, valuable for everyone to learn a little bit of this stuff. But, uh, but I think that the life cycle, as I like to think of it, is of, of linguistics works in the following way. Or rather, I think it should work in the following way. I think that there are people that are really phenomenal at going out and talking with speakers of languages and collecting data about how languages are used. And there are people that are really phenomenal, and sometimes they're the same people, at taking these these collections of data and trying to systematize them in various ways. I think there are people that are really amazing at that. And there are also people that are very good at, and again, maybe they're the same people, that are very good at looking at different people's systematizations of different data sets, perhaps even from different languages, and coming up with ways to systematize even those, or ways of describing regularities that seem to crop up in these different people's descriptions of these different languages. And what I think of the role that mathematical linguistics can play in this is that after this is done, the mathematical linguist can look at these descriptions and these statements of regularities that people have made, and they can identify what kinds of alternative ways of stating the same kinds of generalizations, or even alternative ways of stating generalizations that are very close to the ones that were previously stated, that cover the same data that might diverge from them in various ways. And the mathematical linguist is, I think, trained in understanding different levels of complexity of description. 
in ways that uh, that often other people who haven't studied this aren't. And so certain descriptive generalizations can be proposed that are actually impossible for a computer to actually compute. And that, I think, is a uh, not a desirable situation to be in. If we're claiming that people are computing things that we know that no computing device can actually do, then we either need to say that people are, are magical in a certain way, which might be true, but it seems to be something that uh, we wouldn't want to immediately jump to, or we want to find an alternative way of describing the generalization that's being made, one that is computationally more respectable or responsible. And so I think once the computational linguist or the mathematical linguist looks at the generalizations that are being made, suggests ways of unifying them or phrasing them in a different way, they can give them back to the linguist and say, well, could you talk about them in this way? And the linguist can give them back to the descriptive linguist, and that person can go out into the field, collect more data, trying to understand, is this thing that the mathematical linguist told me to look for, is this out there? Is this going to show that this way of describing things can't actually be done, or is it going to show that it isn't impossible to continue to describe things in this way? And I think that this is a continual feedback loop with people collecting more data, people systematizing that data in a preliminary way, and the mathematical linguist trying to understand what this is telling us about the kinds of deep properties that natural language has or may have. And then that feeding back into questions about what new sorts of data should be gathered in order to verify or falsify these ideas. I think that's a way that mathematical linguistics and really mathematical um, approaches to different fields in general can interact with people that are already in these fields. I think it's not, it wouldn't be desirable if everyone became a mathematical linguist because then no one would be out there collecting the data and no one would be out there making the preliminary systematizations or generalizations about the data that mathematical linguists need to have in order to understand what the properties that language might have could be. Yeah, so I have to say, I'll put my cards on the table here. Um, <laughs> I am very excited about this area of research in the field because it's the first time I've seen an attempt to like unify a lot of disparate theories. And maybe that's the kind of thing we sort of associate a little more with something like physics. Like there's this division of labor where we have theoretical physicists and experimental physicists. And at least part of what some of the theoretical physicists are doing is coming up with a description that just makes it clear how this discovery and this theory over here hooks up with this other discovery and this other theory over here. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to have a theory that describes one world. And maybe it's a similar thing with language. Like at the end of the day, we're trying to describe uh, human language, the ability of humans to learn things, which is one giant, hugely complex phenomenon. And at some point, that's probably going to involve integrating a bunch of really detailed, specific accounts of really specific phenomena into a bigger whole in such a way that that whole does not come out looking like a Frankenstein monster, but something actually with a coherent structure. Yeah, I'd like to think that uh, one of the things that mathematical approaches to theories in general, but to linguistics in particular, can offer is a way of integrating different subfields of linguistics with one another and of integrating linguistics with other fields of study. So ultimately, we're going to need to describe how our generalizations about the structure of language are actually able to be 
used in predicting or describing uh, actual languages as they are used, right? So we think that there is this deep and uh, regular structure that is manifesting itself in language use, but ultimately that's a hypothesis about the best way of explaining what actually happens in the world. And I think that in order to really cash out these hypotheses, we need to have them formalized so that in essence using mathematics as the glue that can connect the different theories and different fields and different subfields together. Greg Kobola, thanks for a discussion that I'm sure was really stimulating and it wasn't just a feature of the way you said things. <laughs> thanks, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Music